I have to say, all this talk about championship teams was absolutely spectacular because myself and KJ, for those of you who don't know, obviously everybody knows KJ is a Villa fan, but along with Dobby, I'm a Sheffield United fan. Boo. And it was interesting while your team was relevant for six months. We were relevant for longer than six months. Exactly, there you go. But when we sit on the panel at TSN and we're discussing soccer stuff, there are a couple of things that tend to come up most of the time. One is Aston Villa, Sheffield United, championship stuff. Not when we're on TV. Not when we're on TV, no. no. The other is how this guy always brings up this day in, when was it, 19... 2009, May 2009. May 2009. Don't know the it should know the yeah, day. You yeah. should know, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Some day at Wembley when Burnley yeah. beat Sheffield United to get promoted to the Premier a League. very poor Sheffield United, that has to be said. It must have been if you beat them. <laughs> Some Scotsman lifted the trophy. Yeah. yeah. Special day. It reminds him every week about yeah. it. So. You'll never get back there, you know that. Where? Sheffield United will never get back to the Premier League. Bullshit. <laughs> Since he became a TV person, he's started saying these outrageous <laughs> things that, like, much that better than outrageous. when he... That is the least outrageous thing I've said this week. It might get a bit tense up here, because this, this might be the 15th show we've done in the last two weeks yeah. together. So, and we've got yeah, another, grumpy we've got another one tomorrow, then another one Saturday, and another one Sunday. We've had one today already. We had one yesterday, we had one Tuesday. So we, uh, I see these two more than I see my two kids, and that's well, not even an exaggeration right now. They're probably better behaved as well, though, aren't they? Oh, without question, it, they it's are. Been a, it's been a pretty busy few weeks because we've had the UEFA Champions League, the CONCACAF Champions League, which was a run that I don't think we expected to go as long as it did, probably, especially no. after the draw for TFC. Um, KJ's basically half Mexican now. He's spent so much time down <laughs> there the last few weeks. Um, but you did have the privilege of being in the Azteca. Yes. Which is one of those, you know, cathedrals of football, such as Bramall Lane in England. <laughs> um, you know. But when you... So predictable. Azteca, <laughs> Bramall Lane. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cathedral. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Bramall well, Lane's not even the best stadium in its own city. It's, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's got all that history, of yeah. course, uh, the World Cup games, everything that happened sure. there. Um, what was that like, being somewhere like that? It's been renovated, but does it still feel like it's... Yeah, that's a good point, actually, because obviously there's some stadiums that are over here that whenever they get to 25, 30 years, the North American way is to just bomb them, blow them up, you know, and then we'll build again. Well, obviously they didn't do that. I have to say they have a lot of history there and they've maintained that when you, when you first came in. So, I mean, I know some of the guys earlier talked about it, but... Uh, I think I was only with Kurt actually when we went to Mexico City. We were at, we had to travel with the team to the stadium for security reasons, so which was pretty enlightening actually because our hotel, which was also with the team, was about forty five minutes away from Azteca, um, and on a good day, Mexico City. For anyone who's not been there, you don't need me to tell you is is incredibly big, um, and and so we had um, a police convoy to get to the stadium. This is after you'd sat poolside eating steak for five days down there while we were grafting oh, doing no, champions. No, prime rib. Prime rib, yeah. yeah. It was all right. Winding us up, <laughs> telling us you were eating prime rib. I wasn't rib. winding you up. Yeah, you were. No. <laughs> we were stuck in a studio for like three days consecutive. You were. We you were eating prime rib. Well, you had Dunfield, I had prime rib. It was a good deal. Um, so, yeah, so we went on this... At, Anyway, the story was we, we take the convoy with the team and you get to the stadium and you, you, they, they guide you in. And then where, they, where you park, you actually have to walk down this, like, this really large tunnel. And, and actually, we have the World Cup later this year, so I've been doing a lot of preparation. I just finished reading Diego Maradona's How I Won the 1986 World Cup book, which is... is Cheating. It's, <laughs> it's... There's one, ans it one word. It was more than yes. one word. It, <laughs> it's, it was actually a very, very funny book, but... Maradona talks about that tunnel himself, about how he had a big team talk there. And so my point being is that, yes, it's renovated and it doesn't look like a stadium that was hosting games in the 1970 World Cup or the 1986 World Cup, on the only stadium actually to host two finals. But they, they've maintained the historical reference points to it. So you've still got the tunnel. You've still got the dressing rooms in the same area. You've got the ramp that obviously was the famous ramp where the teams walked up for the final that time. Um, so it was really, it was really good experience. I mean, I love history anyway. I love history. I love sports history. So it was nice to be able to go on and 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 really, exp you know, ex experience that. 
And the other thing, too, is it, it really wasn't lost on the TFC players. You could tell, you know, you, when you travel with them, of course, they're out there and they've got the pictures before. They did the same when we were in Guadalajara, but you could really feel it and talk into the players. Like I spoke to, to, to Altidore on the way back to the bus and we were talking and I was showing him pictures from the 86 World Cup and there was a real appreciation from them. And I mean, that's somebody who's been there before and played there that they know that that is a, a historical place to play and visit. And I, lo I love the part about the team plaques, KJ. Tell anyone who doesn't yeah, know about that. Yeah, that's true. Th when you walk down that tunnel, everybody who's ever played there, every team, country or club, um, Sheffield Wednesday, not Sheffield United, had one. Um, oh. Everybody had a... <laughs> Everybody had a plaque who's played there. Uh, and so, they, obviously, TFC will be joining that list now after what was a, an extremely successful night for them as well. KJ said he loves history. There are three things KJ loves more than anything else in the world. History, video review, penalty, penalty shootouts. <laughs> so the CONCACAF Champions League run was just perfect. Yes! Apart from no video review. Um, shootout. And an incredible game in Rotterdam. It was so exciting. We scored in the, the last minutes. I think it was Bellamy. And, um, you know, we were excited to be there. And there was a huge bonus in the days. And I was obviously not on the kind of salaries of the other guys. And there was a famous picture in one of the papers where we score the goal and it goes to the bench. It's obviously not taking a picture of me. It's Bobby Robson and whoever's near the bench. And I'm there like the manager, like, get back, get back, defend. Because I needed a victory because I was going to get a huge bonus. So we go to the next stage, we're in Barcelona, um, we get to the game, we get to the, the hotel, fantastic, great city, we have a look around, and then this rainstorm starts, and it's incredible, it's bouncing off the ground for six, seven, eight hours. It's like Scotland. Yeah, well, it was worse than Scotland, but we get to the stadium, um, there's lots of talk, the game's going to get called off, the, ga the game gets cancelled, the pitch is unplayable, so... We're heading back to the hotel. Lo and behold, Shakira's in Barcelona. She's having a party in the penthouse upstairs. Everybody and anybody who's, who's in Spain that, uh, that night is going to be at this party. Mm, I'm sure not everybody. It VIPs was, like yourself. Uh, I don't <laughs> know if I was a VIP. I was like hanging on to Alan Shearer's coattails at that point, probably. And there's going to be this party that night, and we're going to go if the game's the next week. But we're not going to go for the games the next night. So I am praying to the gods, please be next week. I want to be in this party so much. And lo and behold, the games the next night and we get beat 3-1 comfortably. So if it had been different, you could have gone to the party. Yeah. Shakira wouldn't have been able to resist She would you, be saying Gerard who at this point. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Unfortunately, she is still saying Gerard who. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yeah. Where was the best place you played? Played, I would probably Goodison. Come on, Anthony. <laughs> I did. I was lucky enough to play at Goodison. It's a fantastic place to play. Um, I think if I had one more game, I always answer St James's Park for obvious reasons. It means a lot to me, and it was a tremendous stadium. And when that stadium was rocking, um, it was it was a great place to play. And you could barely hear yourself think. Um, I'd been at the San Siro, never played, but got to be there on the bench. New camp. Bench again. Yeah, bench again, unfortunately. Pretty much a lot of places, but Hamden's very special as well to me. Um, everywhere in England, is, you know, Emirates, Old Trafford, a lot of great places. Marseille, bench again. But another fantastic place to see a, a UEFA Cup semi-final uh, against Drogba, who, who was incredible. And the atmosphere, you know, we watched the game, I think it was last round, it was, it was fantastic. And we did a full 30-minute Europa League show, which on a... On a Thursday, having done Champions League for, for two full days, then to come with, especially in the group stage of the Europa League, you'd, yeah. you'd rather sort of double header, stick forks in your eyes. Locomo <laughs> locomotive Moscow at 10.30 in the morning. Yeah, Skinderbale. Yeah, yeah. Skinderbale. Yeah. So we're wondering, what are we going to fill this half an hour show with? With Marseille against, I, I can't remember. So we go through the whole of the 30-minute show, trying to find things that we can talk about, and then we throw to the game, and then uh, Stephen turns around and says... I played there once. I've got this great story about no, Didier Drogba. I didn't Drogba. say I played there. Tell the story You're properly, on the bench. please. I was on the bench. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> I've seen that stadium full. Unfortunately, I was sitting at the side. The producer's yeah. like, why didn't you tell us that 35 minutes ago when we needed things to talk about on television? <laughs> because he's a humble man. He does it all the time. He doesn't necessarily want to keep talking about his career. I can say that because he's my mate, and it's true. You know? Like, he's not... He's oh, all, hold on. Oh, he's I, a, I have to finish it. <laughs> 
I, I, I love my other mate who sometimes sits next to me, but if Dunfield had been talking about oh, it, yeah, yeah. half an hour later, he'd still be telling the story. And some of the details might have been right. It may have been right. May have been. May have been. We've got a great story about Dunfield. So he's back at Manchester City in January. And he was so excited he to go so back. Proud he was like, I'll visit Manchester City. So you know, proud of himself. I'll probably be with Pep. And so he gets here, we're texting him back and forward, and he's nowhere near Pep. He can't even get within a <laughs> hundred yards. He was taking through the fence. He's taking yeah. pictures through the fence. He, he's yeah. sneaking pictures. He's basically an intruder in the Manchester City training ground or the, the first team training ground. So he's loving it. And eventually he, he sends us a picture. He's at the game on a Saturday where we hit set up for Newcastle Man City, I think it was. Yeah. And we had it all arranged, and anyway, he's there. So before it, he takes a picture, and he shows us this, for some reason, some obscure reason, they give them these plates when they make their debut for the first team, and they have the date and the name and whatever on the plate. And he sends us a picture of his plate, uh, I guess 2001, was it? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, I don't want to spoil the punchline, so carry on. <laughs> so we see the plate, it was and, we're looking at it, and we're looking at it. Had a hole in it. Had a hole. It had a hole in the plate. Broken. Had a little hole. We're like, broken plate. Is there a bullet hole in that plate? <laughs> So we're winding him up about that, and we see the date, and it's, I think it's like early May. It said May 11th, 2001. And uh, so we, so I, I, at that point, I don't know why I knew this, but the date was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so he's all proud of himself. He's about to come live on the Premier League, and we're, all in, we're on our text. And I'm like, uh, tell, uh, when did you make your debut for Man City? He's like, KJ, it's on the plate, May 11th. So I sent him the match report. I'm like, the game on May 11th. When the game on May 11th, <laughs> 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 Bullet hole in his plate, date wrong, <laughs> basically. Didn't Looking through play. the fence. <laughs> didn't get to see Pat. Apart from that, it was, Apart from that, it was, it was uh, perfect. And the hit was almost late as well. But yeah, we made it on. He, he got it on air in the end. But yeah. it was, uh, he, he, we, we, love, we love our Terry, though. He's, yeah. he's, he's, a, he's a boy, that's for sure. As for Champions League this week, quite a week. Quite a week. Yeah, big week. Um, big, week for, big, big week for those who like goals. I don't think we'd have. I don't think we'd ever see a seven-six semi-final aggregate, but we got one of them. Um, and it could have been what? Could have been twelve, eleven. Really, could have. For the chances, big chances. Yeah, I mean, it was a privilege to work on. To be fair, I mean, we thought. Um, I certainly did. You, you told me that you weren't going to say it again, but I thought Liverpool would completely and utterly in the final, and I was almost willing to come out and say it. And I was like, oh, it's fine. And then in the end, Roma win four-two and push it pretty close, but. I was yeah. after the last round when he came out on air and said there's absolutely no, no chance, chance that Juve will come back against Real Madrid. So right. that's fine. It, he gets away with that one To be just. fair, he just got it right. So then the start Every of the, day got worse start from of the next week. show, I'm like, so yesterday, Stephen, you said that there was absolutely no chance that Juve would be able to get back against Real Madrid. And you, would, you were just right. So today, absolutely, surely no chance Roma. Absolutely no chance. <laughs> I can guarantee against you there's Barcelona. no way. No way they're coming back against Bart. You had a bad week, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, we get a to bad Thursday, week. and it's uh, CSKA against Moscow against Arsenal. And so, and they've been do battered. you want to sit in the fence? Like, no way. Arsenal are through. And it, did it go 2-0? 2-0 down. Yeah. Very close. He, he was sweating. Yeah. Oh, I was sweating. Yeah. By yeah. Thursday, I was sweating. Yeah, we don't want to spend too much time doing predictions on the air. We get a lot of things <laughs> wrong otherwise. <laughs> it's quite remarkable, actually, that uh, we got some people who work on the TSN soccer shows who are at the back there. Um, one of them is the only, for some reason, and I don't know how, he's a Juve fan who lives in Hamilton who wears a Huddersfield town jacket. Yeah. Pretty unfortunate. Uh, unique, I think, is the... Uh, well, he, to be fair... He, he should sell it on eBay now before they go down. He needed a Premier League team. Yeah. And we did a lot of Huddersfield games on <laughs> we TSN. We have had a lot of Huddersfield games. We've had a lot of Huddersfield, Huddersfield games on TSN. Yeah. And so, to be fair, Joe picked a decent team, but he also had a big bet this year. He did have a big bet. Yeah. Uh, so, you, you want to tell about You're involved in it. Yeah, I do. So, I told him in September that Huddersfield would definitely get relegated. Because he's good at predictions. <laughs> Just to wind him up, basically. But I also don't love Huddersfield. You also very gave defensive. him fantastic odds. Gave him great odds. So, I gave him... We bet in beers. We don't bet in money, obviously. <laughs> because we both like a pint of Guinness. So, we bet 10 pint of Guinness if Huddersfield stay up. I'm going to Give Joe, Be uh, Joe Del Busso, and if they um, go, go down. down, one pint of Guinness to me. So I gave him 10 to 1 odds. It's looking and he's not confident It's looking point. a little bit nervous He's again. not confident. Yeah. He's but not. He shouldn't be. Tried to settle at some point, give him five, he wouldn't take he wouldn't it. wouldn't take that. Should have no. took it. Yeah, uh, maybe. Well, 
he's still actually at least involved in society right now while he's waiting for Huddersfield to go down. The other one that I'm amazed is actually here is Fernando, who's a Roma fan. Yeah, we got a Roma fan with us. Who yeah. We actually had a camera on him in the newsroom yesterday. Fernando Cam. Fernando Cam, as he was throwing things across the Sports Centre newsroom at TSN, um, which I wish we would have been able to put on. It was almost better than the game, just watching him in that chair in the getting, newsroom. Getting reactions. Back and forward. Yeah. We, we wanted a gift, didn't we? We, did, we yeah. wanted one of the one of them boomerang that things. That would have been fun to be. Back and forward. <laughs> I think it was the Wijnaldum goal, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, he was disgusted, disgusted with the defending. Yeah. Sometimes the show that we do, and you know, we talk quite a lot on TV, unfortunately, sometimes 45-minute pregame shows, and then sometimes the show off the air is a little bit more entertaining than the show on the air, but we have to keep ourselves occupied. Uh, a lot of the time. I mean, watching the games is, is fun and building all the video and that, but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of Thursday afternoon Europa League quiz days that keep <laughs> us going. That, that, that they've been pretty good this year for us as well. So They have. Well, you're the quiz master. You're, you're the expert at that sort of thing. And you cheat every time because you go I do not cheat. You, you do, do cheat. You do cheat. You go on the World Wide so Web I don't and you cheat, cheat so every we had, time. We I had an epic quiz this year, and the, che- the quiz... Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. Thanks, Joe. The quiz this year, it was an epic quiz. Joe came up with it. And it was every player who's played or managed in the Premier League. And there's like 41 or something like played that. Played and managed. Played yeah. and managed. Every, every yeah. person who's played and managed same in the Premier team. League. Was it the same team? And no. 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 And so what Joe did is he printed out the... Uh, by the way, we're supposed to be on air like watching football matches while we're doing <laughs> this. But it keeps us going. Um, and he printed out the, the teams of which the players have been on. So... Like I'm, I'm into it. I'm well away, and I look over at Wildman, whose memory is absolutely awful. He's got like a goldfish memory for get things, and he's got like 35 out of 41. I'm looking at him, and he's like, never off his phone. Never off his phone. He's he like, he was texting his wife, his but he's like, I'm like, yeah, okay. Safari every time. Can, now you can admit it. <laughs> no, I admit cheat. it. Admit it. I do admit not it. just admit it. I won't. <laughs> admit it. Come on. You do have a very right. good memory for certain things. Toronto FC. I got a, yeah. You I do, to be TFC, fair, I do have a terrible memory. But your TFC memory is better than anybody's, I think. My wife will tell you my memory's really crap. But a lot of the time, it's just I don't listen in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> every she knows. Point, every credit. <laughs> she, she knows. <laughs> yeah, not breaking news. But, you, but your TFC memory is, uh, is pretty good. We yeah. all, all kind of help each other out a little bit with that, but... Um, maybe you guys can tell the story about the uh, the difficulty. And w- I was with during the first leg of the final. I wasn't I, I wasn't allowed to be on the sidelines because Concacaf rules. So I was because Concacaf because it's just Concacaf. Um, you know, MLS. Well, why do things the MLS usual Cup, way when you can World make things Cups, complicated? Go on the yeah. sidelines. Concacaf comes into the building and everything has to change. So I'm in the booth with these guys for the first first hour of the uh, game in the final. Uh, against against Chivas Guadalajara, and these poor guys are broadcasting the game. And Chivas Guadalajara come out, and it's good luck picture, good luck getting the numbers. Um, and so you think, okay, well you've got a few minutes to blend in. <laughs> a goal one nil after 110 seconds, <laughs> and I look over at these two. And by the way, they won't say this, but these two do a tremendous job in commentating on Toronto FC games. The one on the far end is basically chronicled every signi- significant memory in Toronto FC history. Sound up, listen to it. It's the marvelous tone of Luke Warman. And I mean that genuinely. But so when a ball goes in the back of the net as a play-by-play man, your first rule is what? You've got to say who it is. And at that point, when the ball went in the net, I looked at you and I had terror on my face because I was like, <laughs> please tell me who he knows. And he looked at his sheet. And at this point, because they're very good at what they do, They'd written down notes on the colours of the boots of the players because you can't see the numbers because they had the stripes on the back. So right away, I look at him. You're going like that, and then he writes like he tries like a, a, a mark underneath the player's name, and immediately I forget it was Pizarro. Pizarro, yeah. Pizarro one, and then you're in. And it and it's so important that that is that story is told because now whenever you hear the sound up of the final. The ball goes in the back of the net, and it's Pizarro 1-0. But that's the story, how Pizarro 1-0 gets it. Otherwise, it's just 1-0 Chivas. It's boring, right? So Shame it, was it wasn't Delgado in the 119th <laughs> minute or whatever it was. Not <laughs> 90, no, ex- no extra time, of course, because con- CONCACAF. Yeah. I didn't mind that rule. Well, I, I think, to be fair, I know I'm on a two leg. Over two-leg final, I know I'm in a minority, but I didn't mind And to be fair, it was getting late. I didn't mind it either, because it was well past <laughs> my bedtime. Well past my bedtime. If it had gone to extra time, TFC would have got beat anyway, I yeah, think. I think so. 
They were back. Very they were very, very tired. So when they came out, they they were obviously it was cold. They'd all got their track tops on, and Chivas take. I, I should really have realized beforehand that it was going to be a problem. They take their track track tops off, and the first thing I think is, oh shit, I can't see a thing. Yeah. The numbers were like it was horrendous, and they bad in England a few years ago. They stopped that because they made people put patches, bad. white white patch on the back if it was striped. Well, so. I was telling you guys back in the day when I used to watch Celtic in Glasgow, it, they never had any numbers on the back. They only had them in the shorts. So, and then they made them create a block for the number, but it was awful. We couldn't see a thing. But it wasn't as bad as my worst broadcasting moment in Canada, which actually wasn't in soccer. It came in rugby, rugby union. For some reason, when I first moved to Canada in 06, I was working for the fan, and they thought, well, this guy can't do baseball, can't do hockey, can't do any of the normal things, so they sent me to do all of the things that an English guy stuff. should know about. No cricket? No, they didn't, there was no cricket right at that moment, but I did the Queen's Plate horse racing. I'd never seen a horse even move in my life, let alone race. I did the Canadian Open golf, and I'm as far from a golfer as you can get. The only reason I go to the golf course oh, is Oh, please to tell your Canadian Open tell golf, the story. golf story. Please tell the story. You've got to tell that story. I know we're digressing, but you've, okay. got, to, you've got to tell that story. No, it's not. I mean, it, no, it's funny. Golf story's good. It's good. <laughs> so everybody's sitting in the room, and there are all these people who know about golf, and I'm having to do these updates on the fan, which at that time was 2020 sports. So it's every 20 minutes you've got to come up and, and say something. So you never see the course. You're just sitting in a... It was Angus Glenn and Markham. I was sitting in a tent with 50, 50, 70 people who know. The only good thing was it was a free buffet all day long. So it was fantastic. <laughs> he loves his buffets. So <laughs> you would do the reports off the screen. So someone who had input the data put it in wrong. And I'm, I'm not really thinking. I'm live on the, the air. It comes in. And apparently this guy is on hole number 12. And he's put a putt in from 312 feet. <laughs> It comes up on the screen, 312, and I don't think, well, that must be wrong. I, I say, well, it's amazing. This guy's just put a putt in, 312 feet. So anyway, they correct 49 other journalists. 49 other journalists. Like, like, what's this clown going this on about? idiot, and this why guy, is he like, here? They sent you there because you were supposed to know. I was supposed to know. So there was that. There was the, uh, tennis, the Rogers Cup tennis. There were a few other things. Anyway, so I get to TSN, and it's the same thing. Oh, you're English. You must know about rugby. Well, I'd done rugby league before in England. In fact, yesterday was 20 years since I commentated at Wembley. Biggest upset in Challenge Cup final history when Sheffield Eagles beat Big Wigan, Wigan. I was Warriors. There. I was there for that too. Was, it was crazy day. Anyway, another sidetrack. So, okay, we've got some Canada Rugby Union games. So, no, no problem. I'll go do a couple. We had uh, Canada against New Zealand Maoris at uh, BMO. A few trips out to Vancouver. They played at Swan Guard. Luke loves his trips to Vancouver. I don't mind trips to yeah. Vancouver in the summer. And um, this was a holiday Monday, and I was in Seattle doing a Whitecaps game on the Saturday. They're like, you can just go up Sunday, and there's a, there's a rugby game on the Monday. Like, okay, no problem. So then, after, after I agreed to do it, they're like, actually, it's not just a rugby game. It's a triple header that we're doing. <laughs> and those th the three games will follow each other. We're showing them all live. Canada's playing the U.S., um, Fiji against Samoa, and Tonga against Japan. Oh, great. Thank you. So... We get the team sheet in rugby, they give it you the day before. Well, this game was on TSN2, and no one's really watching it. Nobody knows. It was the last game of the triple header, and somehow I've survived Tonga, Japan, and managed to do Canada-US, and it's Fiji against uh, Samoa for the, for the final of the tournament. So they'd given us the team sheets the day before, but sometimes in rugby there are late changes, but they didn't tell the, the people in the broadcast booth. I didn't know that this wasn't going just to TSN. It was actually being picked up on the International Rugby website, going around the world, including Samoa, where it was being broadcast on one of their TV stations. They just happened to have this famous player called Sinoti Sinoti, who is a winger. You'll never forget that name. Never forget that name. He's a winger. And the, only p the numbers were bad on that day as well. The only person I could pick out the whole of the, the first half was this guy, Sinoti Sinoti, who's number 14. He's going up and down in front of me on the touchline, so it was great. He scores a hat trick. Fantastic. Get to half time, I'm thinking, this is great. This guy's fantastic, no problem. And then the thing you should never do on Twitter, uh, on a, in a broadcast, never. open up Twitter at half time, right? Well, I can never go back to Samoa again in my life, even if, <laughs> even if I'd had it planned, because Sonoti Sonoti, one of the most recognizable faces of Samoan rugby, was actually on the bench. And I still to this day don't know the guy who got the hat trick. But I've not done rugby again since. So. 
So yeah, it's important to know who it is you're calling, the yes. color of their boots, everything else. Yes, it's that was a difficult one. You, yeah, you poor Luke hasn't lived it down, have you? No, no. To be fair, nobody knew it wasn't him. Even the guy in the truck, they're putting the graphic on Sonoti, Sonoti hat trick. <laughs> the analysts talking about Sonoti, great, great play from. S the problem was then, I didn't know who else was playing, so I had to do the whole of the second half without actually mentioning anyone's name, which is more challenging than you would think. Number nine to number seven, he kicks it to number six. <laughs> great it's play a try by, for great some play more. Great scrum half. Good times. Good yeah. times. But yeah, we'll, uh, we've got a busy summer ahead. We got a very busy summer ahead. We had a meeting this week, didn't we? And uh, we got this thing called the I don't know the, the World Cup, is it called or something? Yeah. Yeah. So that. And, and the biggest thing to note about the World Cup is that it's England's year. Oh yeah, no chance. <laughs> he, he he got that out because I was about to get there. He he said it today during the show, and I'm like, we've got to bring this up tonight. Luke just drops it's England's year. You're feeling confident, aren't you? I'm oh, more confident than Scotland. Okay. <laughs> Not having that, are you? I can't <laughs> reply to that. I just need to accept. The problem that we've got. I'm going to have my day when it gets to the last 16 and you're playing Colombia. And Jack Butlin drops the ball. Oh, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Butlin drops the ball. Drops the ball. Or, no, I actually. Deli Alley gets I sent actually off. want it to go to penalty kicks. Deli Alley, red card. No, I want penalty kicks. Yeah. I like it when you lose losing penalty yeah. kicks. Who'll we'll be in goal for Colombia? Who'll be in goal for Colombia? David Ospina. Your friend David Ospina. There is no one KJ hates more than David Ospina. Well, maybe. It's a bit harsh. Yeah. But he's crap. He's in your top he's five. An awful goalkeeper. He's crap, mate. Did you see him again? Well, today, six minutes into the game, Diego Costa goes one-on-one, -on -one, and we're watching it, and we're like, we, we have about four-and-a-half-minute halftime show, so we have to prepare about three or four different things before the game. Some, uh, sorry, during the first half when we watch it, some halves are challenging, some halves are easy. And then today we were like, okay, well, Costa got through straight away, puts it wide. And we're watching it, and he looks at me, he goes, we tend to do this quite often about goalkeepers, to be fair. Did you see Aspina lying down on the floor? I'm like, yeah. So we go straight into the editor's room. We work with our, with our guy called G Gerard, who's a master. We work on it, and we put some stuff on the screen, and we basically show him lying on the floor as he comes to get the ball and, and Costa puts it wide. And then perfect, as sometimes happens in our industry, you follow the narrative and you don't know where it's going to go. But right before halftime, Costa goes through one-on-one. Ospina comes down, lies on the floor again, and Costa just lifts the ball over the top. 1-0 Atletico, game over. So, um, yeah, Ospina on Thursdays has been the bunt of us for, for a while on, on TSN. He's an absolutely shocking goalkeeper, and I can't believe he's had such a, a strong career. And I'm going to tell you why, because he causes panic within a box, you know? And it's not just the decisions that he makes and his reaction to goals or he's lying down or making mistakes, coming for things he shouldn't come for. It's the indecision that he creates between a mm. defensive unit. Mm. And that's why I think he's so shocking. I can't mm. believe... He's played at such a level for such a long time. And, you know, I, I know he had that, what one was it? He had a great World Cup, didn't he? He was yeah. very good. He made yeah. some good saves. And that's basically what he built his career on. But since then, absolutely awful. I will say this. There's something about that, the, the international game that can bring people together. Like, I was in New Jersey a couple of years ago for a TFC game, I think, against the Red Bulls. And we were staying in the same hotel as the Colombian national team. And it really was an eye-opener for me to see them. They were all hanging out in the reception. Good guys, Hammers, Freddie Gurian, everybody's there. And Did Spina avoid you because he'd heard what you said about him? <laughs> no, he didn't. I'm not important to him. Um, but I was watching them, and it was like these guys were on holiday. And it was like they'd been freed away from the pressures of the club's game. And they were playing, obviously it was a friendly in New Jersey the next day. And it, but it was like they were with their own people and then... There's something about that South American willpower, I think, that, some, uh, that I think can sometimes generate tremendous success from these South American teams. And maybe we'll see a very different Ospina. You mentioned it. We did in the World Cup. But when he's, you know, it works both ways. And you can speak a lot more about this than me, about the indecision he provides for the defenders. But, you know, I mean, he's also a goalkeeper and he's got Callum Chambers and, and Mustafi in front of him. It's not exactly helpful either. So uh, it doesn't make it. I mean, Arsenal, uh, there's reports today that Arsenal are going to look, look to buy a new defender. I think they need to buy four. So, the way that... Yeah, well, that's what I mean. They need, to, they need at least four new defenders and a goalkeeper themselves. So. Of all the keepers you've, you've played in front of, who was the one that scared you the most? 
they all scare you because they're crazy. Keepers are crazy. Why would you be a goalkeeper? It's like you dive in front of boots and <laughs> challenges and heads. And you played with track pants. Surely though. it was Mr. Track Pants oh, himself, Gabo Karai. I you, forgot about him. You played with track pants. This guy was a cracker, honestly. Got so many stories on him. So, Sheffield Wednesday, Turf Moor, championship game. He was incensed by a penalty decision. He decided <laughs> he would hang about by the post. The referee blew the whistle. He's still complaining. The guy just rolls it into the other side. <laughs> it's like, what's going on? He had this chocolate brown mini that he would drive to training. I don't mean like one of the new minis, one of the old minis where it was... Like Mr. Know, Bean? Yeah, tiny little wheels. <laughs> so back in the day at um, Burnley's training ground, um, it was same facility, but there was nothing there. So you... you uh, basically a farm. <laughs> basically, it was Burnley. A field in the middle. <laughs> no, but what I'm saying is <laughs> Burnley. The back of the Premiership money, they built a, a nice yes, facility on the same it's ground. Still Burnley. <laughs> anyway, he didn't live in Burnley. We trained. Oh no, we, exactly. We, we, Did we the captain of Burnley live in Burnley? <laughs> Can I finish my story, please? <laughs> we changed it uh, at Turf Moor, and we would drive to the facility. So it was not ideal. You'd drive there in the winter. You'd be soaking wet in the back of the car. We'd share cars. We'd with, with car share and, and going fours and fives or whatever. And Gabor would take uh, Brian Jensen. I, I don't know if anybody in this crowd knows Brian Jensen. The beast. The beast, we called him. Yeah. What was he like? Look, what size was he? He was 17 stone. Yeah, it was six <laughs> foot four. He was a beast. Fat guy, you know, like heavy goalkeeper, but could make miraculous saves. Had games where he was tremendous, had games where he was absolutely awful, but great guy, Danish. He used to go with Gabor because they were the goalkeepers. And we're there one day, it's November, it's pouring the rain, it's been raining for like two days straight and we're driving away and I'm in a car with Andy Gray and John Harley and a few of the other guys, uh, Robbie Blake and we're driving, we're like, is that Gabor? <laughs> so he's at the side of one of the, the roads, he's tried to go in the grass and he's got his mini stuck so the little tiny 12 inch wheels are like spinning in the muck and Brian Jensen, the beast, is standing behind his car trying to push it forward and Gabor's like, push, Brian, push. And we're like, we just drive on. We're like, get away from these two idiots. The guy was a maniac. He got a dead leg in a game. We thought he was going to lose his leg. He was like, listen, the boss. Ah! So we get an ambulance. It meets us halfway between wherever we were in, in Burnley. And it picks him up. And I call the physio that night. And I'm like, Mitch, how's Gabor? Did, did he lose his leg? He's like, no, he's absolutely fine. He's going to train on Monday. Comes out on Monday, he's got the grey track pants on, he's there in training. The guy was a character. He was, he was incredible. <laughs> and the best keeper? It's a tough one because Shea Given was excellent, but Steve Harper was also a very good keeper. And I think if Steve Harper had left Newcastle, he would have played for England because it was a sticky time for England. They, they didn't have a real number one. Still and don't, really. Do yeah. <laughs> and Harper was brilliant and... He stayed around, he, you know, he had a comfortable life and he, he made great money, but he was a tremendous keeper. So really neck and neck between the two. Alan McGregor, who was at Hull, he was at Rangers. He, I played with him in Scotland. He was another fantastic keeper. Um, but I was fortunate enough to play with a few good ones. I think it's actually great that goalkeepers are getting more and more credit in the game. I don't think we've talked about him enough during the time all the way through and now obviously De Gea and, and Neuer and, and we heard the guys earlier talking a little bit about Buffon but it feels like that era of uh, you never talk more about goalkeepers than ever before you know it used to end up when well, we when we covered the game in England like it was like it was Schmeichel and everybody else yeah. you know and it's like nobody else can come up to the level well, of Schmeichel was like Peter the first Schmeichel. big personality he was, do you think yeah but like, but now I feel like people are, people are understanding yeah. people are understanding more that you know you don't win Champions Leagues or you don't win you know La Ligas or Premier Leagues or Serie A's with, with average goalkeepers, really. But we were talking about this the other day when we were looking at Player of the Year in England. Right. And a goalkeeper's never going to be able to, to win that. And you look at best player in the world right now, there's all the conversation, Ronaldo, Messi, is Salah going to get up there? Yeah. Um, a, a goalkeeper's never going to be on that list, despite the fact that someone like David De Gea is yeah, no. so good. And they probably shouldn't be... But I think it's almost Why? because the hardest thing in the game is to score goals. Goals win games. And goals win games. And it's the hardest thing to score. It's the hardest thing to do. And that's what is the difference between the, the greats and the average players, the ones that score the goals. We look at Salah, this, you know, everyone's talking about him for a reason. You know, I saw one analyst this week put Salah better than Messi now, which is an extreme stretch. But, um, you know, so 
but it's almost like the goalkeepers. I think they they are the the one thing I think. I've never been a big fan of individual awards in team sports, but North American sports are fascinated by them. And so, like, if 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 the game of football or soccer was governed here, I think that there would be a greatest goalkeeper in the world award. You know what I mean? There would just be, because like you said, they're never going to win the Ballon d'Or because of how hard it is. But when you look at De Gea or you look at Neuer, you know, for me, and I've said this, bef I've said this before, I think that, the difference between the elite goalkeepers, the top five goalkeepers in the world, and the number 15th or the 20th goalkeeper in the world is enormous. And I don't think the difference between the fifth best outfield player in the world and the 20th best outfield player in the world is as big. And that's what makes them so valuable for me. And that's why, you know, that's why you look at the, the, the favorites for this year's World Cup, go through every one of them. Most of them have all got great goalkeepers. And, and, and I think a great goalkeeper will be winning it come June, the July 15th. Which one? Um... Who's the best? Yeah, Joe Hart. Yeah. Hey? <laughs> Joe Hart might not even be in Russia, <laughs> hopefully. Um, so who's going to win the World Cup? Is that what you're asking me? Who's the best goalkeeper? Jordan Pickford. <laughs> uh, the best goalkeeper in the World Cup um, is De Gea, because I don't know if Neuer is going to be there, which is a problem for Germany for me. A significant problem. Uh, I know Tostegan's been class for Barcelona. And, you know, we were talking about Tostegan this week off camera, weren't we? About how he's just, he could be an outfield player like Neuer. But Neuer's running out of time. You know, where are we in May? You know, he's, you know are you going to say that he's going to be German number one goalkeeper come the start of the game in the, the, their first game? Big question mark yeah, for me. Yeah. And, and he is a massive, massive part of their, their team. I, I, I'm not sure Neuer's going to make it. I do think Tostegan has unbelievable ability with the ball at his feet, KJ, like you said. And he's obviously going to have the ball at his feet a lot of the time, but he's going to have to make big saves at important times. And I'm not sure he's, he's that good an actual technical goalkeeper. Brazil have got two fantastic number yeah, ones. Right com uh, competition there between Alison Becker and, and, and Ederson to take that place. And quick mention about Ederson, to come to English football and to, to take it on like he has is just phenomenal for the age that he's at, the potential that he has to where he's going to go. Again, Terrific with, with his left foot. He can spray it around. He has the composure to stand on the ball, wait for people to move, and then play it. And he also has the, the ability to, to make big decisions, I think, which is really important. He's probably not even going to play for Brazil. So it just shows you the quality that, that they have. But in my opinion, Brazil, Germany, and Spain are well ahead. And it's to your point, they have the best goalkeepers. Yeah, the best goalkeepers. They do. I remember when um, last year I sat down with Schweinsteiger for half an hour and we chatted lots of different things. And, and Schweinsteiger and I were talking about penalties and different things, and I'm going to try and get into it in a World Cup segment on TSN this year about certain things that we've seen in a penalty shootout in the past, and Schweinsteiger was talking to me about it. But he said to me, he said, let me tell you something about Manuel Neuer. He said, he's the greatest player I've ever played with and against. And I said, greatest player ever? And he said, ever. And before, not goalkeeper. That's how big Manuel Neuer was for, that, for, the, for, for Schweinsteiger when he played with him for Bayern in Germany. So it just, I mean, it just goes to the point about what you say. The players, they know what they mean. And when they've got that goalkeeper behind them at any level that they know they can 100% trust throughout everything, it's, for me, it's a massive, massive part of the game. We touched on the Champions League final earlier. Um, have Liverpool got a shot here? Yeah, they do. Um, I think Real Madrid are favourites because of what we've covered over the last couple of days. You know, to see them continue to come through these remarkable patches of games where they're significantly outplayed and they continue to find a way to win. I think it's a remarkable trait in any sport to watch the elite of the elite, that killer instinct, that know of that ability to get over that line, to drag that team no matter what they're going through. And they've got the players like Tony Kroos and, and obviously Sergio Ramos and many others that have been through so much over the last three years together. But the vulnerable, the vulnerable, and Liverpool are vulnerable as well, but I think that they, despite having won so much over the last few years, they don't have that aura of invincibility about them, which I think helps. And um, I think if you're Liverpool, you're looking at that team and you're not, wor you're not, you don't have an inferiority complex. You don't think, oh, here come Real Madrid, but the Real Madrid of the 50s who win every year, we're going to just show up. And they'll feel like they can get them yeah. tactically particularly. And when you've got Liverpool's front three, you can win any game and it's one match, so. Yeah, I certainly think Liverpool have got a chance, but I think first and foremost, Real Madrid, 
they're winners, and it's an obvious thing to say when they've won, but I don't just mean the last two Champions League campaigns. I mean, throughout the majority of the guys' careers, you know, they're bringing in some younger blood in Asensio and Lucas Vasquez, but you look at Kroos and Casemiro and Ronaldo and Marcelo, you know, Ramos. There's so many of them that have just won consistently. And when you think about a one-off game, you, you edge towards them just because that ability to, to get it done and, and through anything, through adversity or through great play. We saw last, last year's final where they were just outstanding, just completely dominated a very good Juventus side. We saw them against Bayern, not at their best, still get through. So for me, they're, they're, they're strong favourites because of that. But they're playing against a side who fear nobody. Their manager puts them out there with, with that mentality to, to go at teams, to play swashbuckling football and they're going to lose goals and the manager gives them great confidence not to allow that to affect them, to just keep going forward. Workmen like midfield who have been sensational in terms of the, the, the distance they've covered to, to create the opportunities for the best front three in world football right now, and no doubt about it. The, the combination between Firmino and his link-up plays, what rate, obviously Salah's goals remains to be seen. He's absolutely incredible season. Whether he can repeat that, who knows, but if he can, he's, he's definitely going to be in the equation, the best player in the world. And, and, and Manny's pace and, and sort of unpredictability is really interesting. So a fascinating matchup between two magnificent sides, and I can't wait because I can't see a game without goals. That, that's the great thing about it. Well, obviously that's coming up the end of the month, but there's plenty before then. The Europa League final as well we'll have on TSN. We've got yeah. a fair few TFC games as well. Tomorrow night. We're back at it again. Tomorrow night. Yeah. TFC Philly. Philly. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, would you say a must win for TFC? We don't like must wins in our, in our industry. Massive game. But it's a massive game. But is it a must win? You can be a massive game and not a must win. I never like to say must win, yeah. certainly not in May. No. no way I, I can say that, but a, a game that is very important that they win to get back on track because they don't want to give an Atlanta and a NYCFC too big a lead at the top of the they East. They already have. They're right? gone. They're no, gone. I disagree. They're gone, I don't mate. think they're gone. I don't think they're gone. I think TFC have too much quality, but it's at that point where it's panic stations need to start winning consistently to maybe catch them. What's the biggest difference about... TFC and MLS now compared to when you arrived here, which was, what, 2013? Yeah, tw May 2013, almost five years to the day. 13th of May 2013. Um, and they still extended the loan. Yeah. Like they even, they they even had a chance first to take Eight a week look. loan period. Is that why you wore number 13? Because you came on the 13th <laughs> of May 2013? No, because I was unlucky for TFC. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was... It was a good league when I came, there was a lot of quality. There was, I would say, surprising quality from that sort of mid-range US player, North American player who I was quite surprised. A Graham Zuzi, a, a, I know Higuain's not North American, but a Higuain, I'd never heard of him. And I'm like, these guys are very good. But in every team, there was still three or four who were very average. I, I wouldn't even say professional level you know that was a problem and now we're at a stage where most 11s are very very good certainly the top 10 teams in MLS are, have got very good 11s and I'd say even 15 16 players and then the rest of the squad still starting to catch up as we start to improve salary cap and we, we increase targeted allocation money and, and and DPs get smarter as we're seeing from an Atlanta and, and some of the younger acquisitions in the league it's only going to go from strength to strength. And, and the attendances, the money, the generation, the money, the, the, the cost of a franchise now, that it's just escalating at an incredible rate. Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's, for me, it's becoming more of an MLS 1 and an M MLS 2. And, you know, there's a lot of teams, like we saw Seattle this week, that they turn around and say we can't compete anymore. And then the next day they come out and say they're going to sign a $10 million player. So it's like... Where are you going to go? Because wh what's the level? Because you've got TFC, you've got Atlanta, you've got these teams with significant amount of revenue that they're committing, and you've got some midway team like Minnesota spent what six million on Quintero. Like Minnesota, you think are one of the bottom teams. So uh, if you if you're not willing to get on board and commit to it, you're going to get significantly left behind. And Philadelphia, the opponents tomorrow night are one of them teams, and that's why when they come into town and TFC is a big deal now in MLS. It feels big when you do games. 
it becomes a game that they absolutely absolutely have to win. You know, whether you call it a must win or not, you got to go out and win those games. And you know, Phil I mean, Philadelphia just would, would you just you would just be swept aside. So, and I think that's the way MLS is going to go for a while, and and until a point where I think eventually some of the low market teams may have to make a a, a, seg a case and say what's going to happen here, and, and is there potential to be two divisions one day? Any questions from anybody? How does VAR work? How does VAR, KJ is the expert <laughs> on VAR. You can answer that question. We don't know. I'm not the expert. You love it. I don't love You don't love, like, you love VAR. If he loved it. He loved it. He's do starting to get a little it? bit skeptical about it. He has VAR at As home when should. his kids do stuff wrong. It, like, it's like, oh, okay, we're going to VAR. Let's take a look if you actually washed your hands after you went to the washroom. <laughs> it's a great idea. <laughs> Who? Me? I'm going to start doing it. Yeah, that's a great idea. Um, how does it work? Checking, checking. <laughs> well, you, you don't actually need me to tell you how it works. That's not the question. Well, the, let me just say this. The, the one of the major problems is the people who are playing the game don't necessarily understand it either. And they have been given, they've sat down in meetings and they've been given the same kind of instructions that we have. I've been on two-hour conference calls, but it's my job to do that, to listen to it before the start of the season. And I'm down there on the field last week and Sebastian Javinko is running over to the referees asking, why are you reviewing this play? And so, like, I get the emotion and the frustration of the games. But when players are not fundamentally understanding the rules, it's leading to more, to more frustration from fans because the fans are going, well, these, these players are saying these guys are idiots and morons who don't know what they're doing. So they must be idiots and morons who don't know what they're doing, which I'm sorry, it's not actually true. Like, you know, and, and Greg Vanny said on the weekend, like, he actually said it to the media, you know, why are they checking the goals that, that, that we scored but not the, the goals that they did? That's, that's not true. Every single time there's a goal, there's something called a check. And you'll see a referee go to his hand and he's doing that. Every goal in Major League Soccer this year, not some goals, every goal goes through the protocol of a check. So then, the re when he's talking to him, then if the referee is told by the, the VAR to do a video review, the video assistant referee, if he's told that he believes he's got something wrong, then he can listen to his advice and then go look at it. If he decides he's done nothing, if there's nothing on, it doesn't mean the referee's not checked here. When the celebration's going on and the players are in the corner and you guys are all jumping around, that's what is going on. The problem is, is the that the, it's taking too long, and this now you're getting instances like on the weekend where some goals are being given where they shouldn't be, and some goals are not being given where they should be. For example, you could make a case that Javinko was offside for the, for the first goal. When I did a Schweinsteiger's interview after the game, I'm about to go live with Bastian Schweinsteiger, and he pulls me aside. He goes, I need to know. That was offside, right? Why was Javinko goal given? And I'm like, all I know is that it was offside, and then he does the interview. So they need to be educated in that process as well. So it's a difficult process. I understand why people are frustrated. I, I, I don't want the game to be taken away, the emotion of the game. When the goal scores, you, that, the last thing you want is everyone to go, all right, let's wait around and make sure we know. Oh, he's given it. Yay, there we go. We've got a goal. That's terrible because... Think that, of the commentator who wastes a good call on a goal that gets cancelled. It's all about you, mate. Like, that's, didn't you have that moment once? MLS Cup? No, there wasn't one in MLS. There was. I remember it. We talked no, about it. I didn't get pulled it. back. No, but it nearly did. And didn't you have a? You, didn't you have that moment where you're like, oh my goodness, I just yeah, did you the MLS. Not cancel Don't that cancel yeah. my call. Yeah. Forget Altidore. Forget Altidore scoring in Altidore scoring in MLS Cup. The referee's doing this to see if he's onside, and all Wildman's thinking is, oh my god, my call's brilliant. <laughs> Don't take away my call. You know I'm right. The one thing I will say is, though, that it does rest with the referee. The, the video assistant referee can only advise him. It's up to the referee if he wants to take the advice, go and check it himself. But ultimately, it's the referee who yeah. has it's his call. And but I think the, the, the pro sorry, Christian. The problem right now is there's a lot of indecision. And there's too many people making decisions. It's supposed to be the referee. But when he sees the check, and you should go and look at this, I think he feels pressure to change that decision because he feels that he's made the wrong decision. And I use um, Ashton Morgan on Nikolic at, at the weekend where, to me, he made a clear call. He didn't think it was a penalty kick. It was reviewed. It was not clear and obvious that that was a penalty kick. We watched it 
10 times and we weren't sure. There was maybe a bit of contact. I personally thought it was not a penalty, but it was open to interpretation. And then he decided to give it because I think he felt obliged because of what had happened at the other end for TFC. I, I can't stand this running over to look at a screen nonsense. It's a farce. So my, I, when this was first introduced, I said to Howard Webb, do you foresee a moment where you will, will get rid of that? Because like Stephen says, once the, v, the VAR tells the referee, you need to look at this, what does the referee think? Oh I no, change it. I got it wrong. So once an official who's educated is looking at the screen is telling him that you got it wrong, it's going to take some balls for him to go over and look at that screen and say, nah, sorry, I'm still going to stick to my guns and I'm going to go with it. So I said to Howard Webb, at what point do you think we're going to get rid of that? And he goes, well, we might get rid of it, we'll see. Because that running over to a screen, it's just, it's so tedious. And for the most part, he's got to the point where he's already got doubt in his mind about the decision anyway. The players just want to play. We've just watched the Champions League games this week in the... How many controversial decisions have we had in the Champions League? The UEFA Champions League semi-final. Was it a handball? Was it not a handball? Was it a foul in the box? Was it not? And so if you can get through UEFA Champions League with it, then I understand why people don't necessarily want it. The World Cup will be the be-all and end-all. If it goes wrong yeah. in the World Cup, it'll be done. But you, but you bring up handball, and that's a great point because the rule is open to interpretation. They need to firm the rule. That's a problem that... We, we sit there every time. We, we, we have different opinions on a handball because one of us think that it was intentional because the hand's out a bit. One of us think he's unfortunate. One of us think that there was not enough distance. We actually get to disagree for a change. Yeah. And I sit on the fence, usually. Always. Um, we've got time for maybe one or two more. Fi last five minutes. No. First off, if he's, is he going to run after the referee before he gives up the gloves? <laughs> They're going to have to wrestle the gloves off before, I think, for him to give it up. <laughs> that guy does not want to go. He's been an incredible goalkeeper, but it's time for him to step aside at this point, in my uh, opinion. Chesney, no. Go get Donnarumma. Donnarumma's hopeless. I got one question. Oh, one question. Yeah. Um, so someone else here is a Roma fan with me, so I've had a really good year watching Champions League, waited a really long time for it. And I was chatting with a friend the other day, and he said, oh, aren't you, after the Barcelona game, he said, oh, aren't you crushed a little bit that Totti wasn't there in the field? You know, so many years, this should have been his game, like that should have been his moment, he should have been there. Aren't you, don't you feel terrible as much as you are happy? And I said, no, like, and there's a part of me that thinks, and I don't know if you guys agree or disagree with this, but sometimes clubs at Roma's level, and I don't want to call them top 10, but I don't want to call them below 20, maybe somewhere in that middle ground, they're held back by their superstars who get to a certain point where they might be bigger than their club. And Totti for 25 years was Roma. They needed a game like this without him. And I don't know if, you, if you've seen that among other clubs, but sometimes certain players, or certain clubs rather, they need to have a blueprint moment after a, a dynasty so that they can build on that for the era that is without that person. And for a Roma fan, like we waited a long time for that. So part of me says, yeah, I feel bad. And he's watching up there from this director's box and it's, it's kind of wrong after 25 years of him being the club. But part of me is like, no, you needed that. And I don't know if you see that among clubs. Are clubs at Roma's level? Like, are they held back by these big, big names? And sometimes they have a trouble moving on. Just like Villa with Alan Hutton when, you know. Uh, great question and points, and you should be sitting on the TSM panel because that was way smarter than anything we said after the game <laughs> of the night. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. To be fair, though, you have to also appreciate being a Roma fan just how unique and special Totti is to Roma. You don't get that really in many other places, but it is important once he's gone that they have that moment, and I think the hiring of Monchi as well is so important because now they're going to be going on and they're never going to be able to compete at the high financial levels that you said to get them into the elevation of maybe the top five, top six, or a quarterfinal, semifinal every single year. But very, very important that they have that moment. So some of those players, Under and many others, are gonna, they're going to be able to remember that as a significance reference point because Totti's era is gone. De Rossi's era is gone, really, now. So it's important for them to move forward. Yeah. It's great for the Champions League that we get teams to do that. It is great. And they have a nice group of young players. Now, the important thing going into this summer is can they make their players believe to stay at Roma? Can they, can they bring in two or three additions? Yes, they're not going to be world superstars on 70, 80 million pounds. 
but can they be young, exciting players to try and build something, maybe a little bit like a Tottenham in, in the Premier League, where you convince Anunder to, to stay at Roma, you, you convince Dzeko to stay, can they keep Alison Becker remains to be seen, but try and build on the, the form that they've shown this season, compete better in, in, in Serie A, and, and obviously try and uh, replicate the run that they've had in the Champions League. Can't afford to let the young talent go, otherwise then you're building again, and you're building again, and you just can't get any momentum. Okay, one final question. Good evening, gentlemen. Uh, I have to ask a question, considering the cannons on my scarf, but before I get into that, I'd like to say thank you. It's nice that we have access to this with football growing in North America, that we can have a gentleman like yourself and all the other panelists today. It's nice. Football means a lot to us, and it's great that it's growing, and you are a part of it. But I have to ask, I'm very curious, uh, what your thoughts are in regards to what you think is going to happen to Arsenal after in the post-Wenger era and what, what you hope and what you think is going to happen? <laughs> go ahead. No, no, you go first. Oh. KJ, KJ, uh, no. has been, KJ has been wanting Arsene Wenger gone for nine years. Nine at least. We heard tonight nine years. Is that true? Um, my, my 2009. First, my first recollection of really believing he should go was back in 2012 when I think they conceded four goals at Ewood Park and they were all the same kind of goals. And I was like, I'm not an Arsenal fan. I just felt that at that point it was time for him to go. I'll say this about Wenger. In all my years of covering the sport, I've never written more quotes in my notebook about a man, from a manager than him, which means I've learned a lot from him, a tremendous amount, not just about the game, but also some things about life as well. I think he's an incredibly intelligent man and a man that will be severely missed by a football club that he's defined over the last two decades, although it was time to go for me, um, and that time was a while ago. The big thing now turns to Sven Milsenstadt, the director of football and the scouts there, because they've got to figure out this team, and they're, for me, they're a mile away from where they should be. Um, they've spent a lot of money on bad players, and it's going to take a lot for them to get to turn it around. And you know, the, the, who, Who's going to come in? I honestly genuinely have no idea. Um, but the, 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 the thing is, for me, is, I mean, Jardim is the attacking manager that, that might fit. Gazidis basically wants the same model as what he had with Wenger, which he wants to entertain people. Um, but, you know, nothing entertains people more than winning trophies, and they need to get back to that. I don't think they're that far away. Uh, I think they need a different... Coach, no doubt about that. I mean, I've been saying that for two years now that Arsene Wenger should have left. The guy's got stale. You can see by the performances. They're not playing to their potential. We we talked about a right back today in Bellerin who was wanted back by Barcelona. And talking about maybe Juventus, but outstanding. One of the best right backs in the world. Performance has been way below par in the last 18 months. Somebody can revitalise him. They need a centre-half, no doubt about it. They need to find that character that Arsene Wenger really lacked to recruit for a number of years and I, I think a new manager can revitalise him and I don't know what that means I don't know if it means playing that same attacking football or it means going to a more defensive shape I don't really think that matters I just think they need a new voice in that changing room two or three pieces of course and they can be challengers now can they, can they win the league? No it's going to take two or three years but that's where it starts by changing the mindset of the quality 15 that you have there. Yeah, mindset's important. They need, a new, they need two new goalkeepers, three new centre-backs, a left-back, and about three midfielders, and they'll be fine. <laughs> One they're new close, goalkeeper, centre-half, centre-mid. Three players. But who's it that? won't be far away. That central midfielder's still got to play with Granite Jacker and Aaron Ramsey. No, he doesn't. He can play with Wilshire if they sign him up. He can play with somebody. Wilshire's not that bad. Oh, Wilshire's okay. There's worse players in Wilshire yeah, up near the top. Well, we, we talk about Liverpool. We look at Henderson, the Milner, yeah. even the Wijnaldum. Yeah. I don't think Wilshire's that far away for the guys. If they go and get a proper holding midfielder who has experience and quality, now, it costs about £80 million. Pounds. Mm. It's not going to be easy and you have to get it right. And you go and get a dominant centre-half and you buy a good goalkeeper, combined an incredible amount of money, but... If you get that statutory player, I think they have enough pieces to start the process. They're not going to be a Manchester City, but they're going to be a, a lot closer. And you go into the next window or the next summer, adding another two or three pieces, 
maybe don't have to go as severe and seven, eighty million pound mark. Maybe you can buy a younger, more exciting player at that point through your recruitment. I don't think they'll be that far away. We had different football mindset. Waman's giving me that look like he does on oh, TV. No, he's got no, I'm just like, he's it's got amazing how long he can talk for when there isn't a producer saying, wrap it up, 10 <laughs> seconds, 10, like, on and on. You always give me that look, and I'm like, we're going to break now? <laughs> <laughs> can never get a word in edgeways with you. Talking. Yeah. Yeah. Because I hog all the airtime on television. No, I'm talking about calling the games. Oh, calling the games, right. Oh, Waman. Yeah. I think we've got to wrap it up there. Uh, great to be here with you guys tonight. Thanks a lot for, for coming, everybody. Um, should be a fun Thank few you. weeks. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much.